Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. From Audacious on Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Kyone Wolf, and this is an extended conversation I had with broadcast legend Gail King. She's the co-host of CBS This Morning and editor-at-large of O, the Oprah magazine. In 2019, she curated the book Note to Self, inspiring words from inspiring people. And as longtime Connecticut residents know, she was in front of the camera at WFSB in Hartford for 18 years, starting in 1981. Gail King, Eyewitness News. Just as I asked other interviewers, Z-Way and Mehdi Hassan, whose extended interviews you can also check out in our podcast feed, I wanted to know how much was she, as a little kid, just like the Gail King we know and very much love today? I was in uh, elementary school. I lived in Turkey, and I got a note home from the teacher that said, Dear Mr. and Mrs. King, Gail is a, a very bright child, but she talks a lot in class and tends to be disruptive. I've brought this to her attention, and, and now I'm bringing it to yours. And to me, in my house, getting a note home from the teacher was the worst thing that could happen. So I was always told as a kid, Kion, that you're a nosy child, which I never liked that. I prefer the word curious or inquisitive. So I was definitely that. Was I interviewing people? No. But I am told I asked a lot of questions. Now, when I get in the zone before interviewing somebody, you know, of course, I've, I've done a ton of prep. My, my amazing producing team has done a bunch of research. And so it's definitely collaborative. But there are some conversations I go into and I think, to some degree, I don't want to know. I want to go in a little bit dumb. Will you talk about what your favorite kind of going into an interview is in that sense? Well, I always want to know as much as possible. And then you can, because when you know as much as possible and you've looked at old interviews, you see what resonates with people, what doesn't, what leads, where they're more open to talk about things and then others. And the reason why I always like to either read the book or watch the movie is because I'll see a little nugget. I'm oh, This is what it means. I'm always looking for a little nugget of something. For instance, I wish I could remember the author because it was such a good moment that I had with him. He was saying that when his baby was born, he was listening to Bruce Springsteen. And I said, but you never said what Bruce Springsteen song. And he goes, I can't believe that you even know that. Now, the producers, as you know, you're well-prepared. You know it, you know, they've, re- they've read the book. They have all these notes. But nobody had pointed that out. And to me, it's just a small thing, but it just gives some insight into who this person is. We just had a thing uh, just yesterday. People were coming on. They have a podcast where they're talking about famous Latinx people. And, you know, it was Jennifer Lopez and Bad Bunny, blah, 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 had all these sorts of notes. Well, when I listened to the podcast, I heard them say Bad Bunny six years ago was bagging groceries. And now he's this mega superstar. And I thought... Why isn't that in the note? So the first thing I said, I can't believe Bad Bunny. Was, and then when I got off the air, people said, I didn't know Bad Bunny was bagging, was bagging groceries. That's such a good little nugget and leads to great conversation. So that's why I prepare, prepare, prepare. And sometimes I think you can be overly prepared, too, because someone's telling a story and you go, no, you forgot the part where. <laughs> <laughs> 
because this show, Audacious, we often have some really difficult, tender conversations uh, about very personal things. Yes. And I wonder when you are in a position to speak with somebody who's been through something difficult, how you approach the threshold of pushing them harder, if that's the right word, or asking more questions to get deeper. How do you feel that out when it's... Well, you just said it right there. You feel it out. I mean, I believe any question can be asked. You just have to have the right time, the right tone, and the right place. So if you're live on television and you've got 30 seconds left, it's not the time to say, well, when you got picked up for prostitution, what were you thinking? You know, that's what I mean. I also think I'm never a, a gotcha type person, even if it's something that's uncomfortable or embarrassing. I always look at it as I'm trying to give you a platform and a space to tell your story the way you want to tell it. You also have to be prepared if the person isn't, you know, telling the whole truth to say, well, that's not how I heard it. That's not what I read. Uh, can you clear this up? Because sometimes you, no one wants to be bullshitted, nobody. So you have to be prepared enough to know exactly who you're talking to. But I think I'm giving you the floor and you decide what you want to share. Now, when it's a very sensitive situation, I think you can do some follow-ups, but I don't want to cause people pain. And the truth of the matter is they don't have to talk about it if they don't want to. So I'm very mindful of that. It's interesting because some people, when they've been through stuff, a, a tragedy, they want to talk about it. Other people don't. And you have to gauge where they are on that. When I think about in your 40 plus year career, the variety of people. That always blows me away when I hear 40 plus years. What? what? Really? How? That sounds like an old person. <laughs> I, had an, I had an intern once say to me, oh, Kion Wolf, I grew up listening to you. And it was a. Oh, no, no, no. I get that all the time. Especially in Connecticut, people will say to me, you know what, Gil, you came to my class when I was in third grade. This is my daughter. She's in third grade. You go, oh, good. Good to see you. I went to CVS the other day. And, you know, when you're picking up a uh, prescription, they always say date of birth, you know, to make sure it's the right person. So I said 12, 28, 54. And they went, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't rude. They were just like, wow. I mean, on the one hand, glad to be still here. And on the other, woo. Oh, no, absolutely. Listen, Walter Cronkite had to retire at 65. I'm sitting here at 68, not even kind of thinking about retiring. So I don't try to hide my age or try to mumble into it. Or, you know, I am so proud to be doing what I'm doing at this stage of my life. I'm so proud to wake up in the morning and be able to stand up off the toilet and not go, oh, you know, I, I may have to hold on when I get up out of a chair, but I, because I got bad knees. But I'm so proud to be doing what I what I really love to do, where I'm doing it. What do you think the difference is between a good interviewer and a great interviewer? I like the feeling that you walk away and you feel satisfied. But very seldom does that happen. You know, for me, two minutes later, an hour later, I'm in the car. I go, oh, I should have asked fill in the blank. And I realize you can't get to everything, but there's sometimes when I go, oh man, I, I even have that. And then it just got away from me. The time just got away from me. So I feel for me, a great interview is when I walk away thinking, I feel we really told that story. And we've had some stories where I go, guys, you know, this just feels very nuts and bolts to me that just the facts, nothing but the facts. I want people to get a sense of this person. 
you know, I want people to see that we're talking to human beings. When you are talking to human beings um, who've done something that, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still thinking about um, R. Kelly. When I think about that interview, I think how you remained composed. And while he, you had said that you want the person to be able to tell their own story and you want to be able to help them tell their own story. And you were offering that to him as well. But we now know, and you probably knew during the interview that so much of what he was saying was, were lies and manipulations. Well, I believe those women. I saw that documentary, Surviving R. Kelly, and I believe the women. And so I, I was not expecting him, that interview to go off the rails the way it did because he went from zero to 200 in a nanosecond. I did not see that coming. And I was able to stay composed because I wasn't afraid. I did not think that R. Kelly, and I didn't know him. I did not think that he wanted to hurt me. I didn't think that, nor did I think he was being theatrical. I do think that it was the first time that he had actually sat down for an interview after that very damning documentary aired, and he wanted to clear his name. So the next day, Khan, I actually called to check on him. And do you know, I was told that he wanted to thank me because people got to see his passion and his pain. And he wanted to thank me for that. And I'm thinking, is that what he saw in that interview? But People said, how could you stay so calm? I wasn't afraid. What I was worried about is that he would accidentally hit me when he was hitting his fist. And I'm thinking, God, that, that could hurt. So I was worried about that. But I didn't think that he meant me any harm. I didn't do this stuff. This is not me, y'all. I'm fighting for my life. Y'all killing me with this I gave y'all 30 years of my career. Robert. 30 years of my career. Now, if that had happened to me when I was a baby reporter, I would I would have totally freaked out. Totally. So I'm not saying I'm this, you know, I got it all together. But because it had come, I've done so many interviews and, and I'd seen interviews with him that when he gets angry, he gets up and walks away. And I was thinking if I tried to comfort him, wait, wait a second. I know he would have just and left. So I knew, let me just sit here. And I looked up at the chair, looked at him, looked at the chair, looked at the chair, looked at him. Looked up, looked down. So he knew I wasn't leaving. And it was sort of like, whatever this is doing right here, I'm going to be sitting here. And I actually think that calmed him down a bit. Can you imagine if I responded the way he did? We'd have both gone off the rails. I'd have a few other questions for you in this interview. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you feel like you are a better people reader because of this practice of interviewing? But I always thought I was a good people reader. Always. I'm also a very trusting person, which has gotten me into trouble a couple of times, you know, gotten your heart broken and all that kind of stuff. So I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt until they give me a reason not to. You know, I, I majored in psychology. I intended to go into child psychology because I love listening to people's problems. I'm very good at that and very good at giving unsolicited advice. So I've always wanted to hear your stories. And if I wasn't going to be a psychologist, then I was going to be a lawyer where I'd be in front of the jury and I'd be arguing my case for the state, never criminal. I didn't want to represent criminals. I'd be arguing my case in front of the state. I thought I'd be good at that. So I've always been a people person in terms of engaging with people. So I don't look at it as interviewing people made me better. That's been the nature of my personality since I was a kid. Thinking about the more difficult interviews you've had. Um... I know when I finish an interview that's emotionally intense, um, 
sometimes I feel like I need to run it out. Sometimes I need to go in my garden and weed or play with my dog. Sometimes I just go on with my day and try to just move forward. Um, for you, because on the one hand, this is feeding your curiosity. This is just a wiring in you and this works beautifully. Yeah. Are there times where you have to take care of yourself where you think, ooh, that really rocked me? And if so, I don't know. What do you do? Well, I feel that sometimes when we're doing the news where it's just one bad story after the other full of negativity, full of pain, where people are just, you know, we're all walking around wounded. Then I had, you know, things recently where I said to the viewers, look, I'm really sorry. This has been a really tough day. Uh, but I also think it's important that people are informed. So, you know, we're not robots up there. Everybody, Kion, has an opinion about something. It's just not my job to share my opinion. But we are not robots. And sometimes it does get to you. So what do you do to take care of yourself? I don't do anything. I don't do anything. It's not like I'm going to go out and run. It's not like because I hate exercise, but I do. <laughs> but, you know, you you sit, you reflect on it, and you just, you know, I've become friends with many of the people who have been through tragedies, just to check on them to see how they're doing. Just because it wasn't just another story to me. You know, all these statistics are actually people, but I don't sit and consume it. I don't do that. I don't do that. Hmm. Turn off the news. A friend of mine just told me once, I can't even watch the news anymore because I, I refuse to allow myself to be emotionally hijacked. Now I walk into my house my apartment, the first thing I do is turn on the, I got a TV in every room of the house. I turn it on because I just like the sound of it. I like the sound of television. I like knowing what's going on in the world. So I, I never turn it off. I probably should, but I never do. I, I am a true blue news junkie. But there are times where you go, God, this is a lot. This is a lot. This is a lot. But I, it's, I don't, it's not like I take a break from it, no. Maybe I need to do something about that. Uh, when you do look at those monitors on all around you at all times and you're hearing the news, you're hearing a lot of different voices who are interviewers now. You're hearing a lot of black from a lot of black people, brown people, indigenous people, and more and more and more. And it's exciting. You've seen this evolution over your career. How do you feel about representation amongst journalists, amongst interviewers? Well, I just know that that matters. I mean, you have to have diverse voices in key positions because we live in a very diverse country. And if you don't have diverse voices at the table, there are some stories that just won't be told because they're not viewed through the same lens. So I, I know representation matters. I know that. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in my own job, you know, where you could raise a point that people go, oh, you know, I hadn't thought of it like that before. I had no idea. In your conversation with Brooke Shields on Now What, you said somebody of color will make a mistake and they're instantly dismissed. Yeah. Someone who's not of color will make a mistake and they'll go, well, they're having a bad day. They'll get another chance. That's true. Do you think there's been any evolution on that? There's been some, but certainly not enough. It's still an industry dominated by white men. So, yeah, sure, there's been some, but no, definitely not. I do feel that we have to work harder. I mean, I just did Michelle Obama, did an interview with her, and she said in the White House, we knew we could not make mistakes. We knew that. Imagine having to live under that banner. And it is true. You know, you, I think sometimes you have to work harder, just as hard just to get less sometimes. But, you know, early on in my career, when I was a baby reporter, I was in Kansas City. Jesse Jackson came to town 
and I did an interview with him and he could tell I was quite green. He, he was asking me about my career and da da da. And I said, well, you know, actually, this is my first job on camera. And he said, well, let me tell you something, Dr. King. He called everybody doctor. Dr. King, excellence is the best deterrent to racism. So be excellent. And I've never forgotten that. I'm going to give I'm going to make it really hard for you to let me go because I'm not good at my job or I didn't do it well. So I'm going to try to make that very, very hard. Now, you can dismiss me for other reasons, but it's not going to be because I didn't work hard and didn't do a good job. But I've never forgotten that he said that. Was there ever an interview where at the end of it, you thought, I'll never be the same after this? Well, Newtown, Newtown was a game changer for me Um, because I had anchored the news in Connecticut for so many years. I felt intimately involved with that story. Now, it would have been a heartbreaking story no matter where it was in the country. But because I, of course, knew the town, knew the interstates and knew it, it just and just the thought of these little children who were sitting in their chairs with their baby teeth. You know, they were five years old, five, six years old. I I just couldn't get that out of my head. And school is supposed to be a really, really safe place. So the trauma and the drama of that uh, was debilitating. So no, that's one I could not get out of my head and still can't get out of my head. I'll always remember December 14th, always. You published a book, Note to Self, Inspiring Words from Inspiring People, back in 2019. Yeah, I don't think it's fair to say I wrote a book. I always say this to the, you know, CBS, we have a franchise here called Note to Self, which is one of my favorite things that we do, where people who are famous or well-known will write a note to, if they were younger, what they would have said. And so they had asked me to go through some of the Note to Selves and pull some that I thought were good. So whenever I see... Gail King author, I just, oof, <laughs> it's a little bit. I know my name is on it. Um, I just curated some of the stories. But yeah, it, it did very well because everybody has a story to tell. Everybody, everybody. And everybody is going through something. Everybody. And I thought, you know, some of the stories stand out more than others. But everybody, everybody's got something, Kion, everybody. So I wonder, when you think about Question asking seven-year-old Dr. Gail King. Yeah, I know. What would your post-it note to yourself be? What would that, what would those inspiring words be? It, it would be, be fearless. Be fearless. Don't be afraid. You know, take chances. I'm not saying you take foolish risks. I am not a exceptionally brave. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not out there trying to risk my life about anything. But I think in life, sometimes we have to take chances about things we believe in whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job. And most of the times I saw years ago on the Oprah show, 99.9% of things that we worry about actually turn out to work out. And if you think back in your own life, you know, for me, it was I didn't get, uh, I didn't make drill team and I was devastated in high school. How could this be? And my best friend did. Or I failed my driver's test the first time. How could this be? This is so embarrassing because I was supposed to drive everybody to the game tonight. The things that you just thought were so devastating, your marriage breaking up. Oh my God, how am I going to... Everything tends to work out. 
And I see this in my own life time and time and time again. Well, Gail King, thank you so much for speaking with me and for sharing your excellence. Deeply appreciate it. And we miss you in Connecticut. It's very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. And thank you so much. That conversation you just heard was part of an episode we did with two other interviewers who were at the top of their game, Mehdi Hassan and Ziway. You can hear those extended conversations right around this one in your podcast feed. And you can also see a photo of young Gail King that she sent us on our website, ctpublic.org audacious. Audacious is always lovingly produced by Khalil Rahman, Jessica Severin Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, with help from our courageous interns, Letitia Peters and Joey Morgan. You can stay in touch with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Kyone Wolf, and you can always send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.